This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back. The conversation continues. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, Nate, before we get into this next part of this set of conversations related to Leviticus and atonement and blood and all that, uh, quick quiz to see how well we're tracking. Oh, dear. (laughs) Okay, so remember I said there were two sets of competing binaries. So you had four adjectives that could be used to describe a thing a person oh is this what was this like clean and holy unclean and holy clean and unholy no wait you can't be there was something you can't be out of the four out of the four things right which one can't you be so you cannot be unclean or defiled impure whatever words you want to use and holy the reason i bring this up uh I think it's interesting. This is never stated explicitly in the texts. Uh, you know, what are the different states we can be in, how to arrange them, that there are three possible overall composite uh, categories that we could be in. But it undergirds the entire Torah, this logic. Uh, so this, it's almost like some basic rules of physics or even, you could even say chemistry. This is like chemistry 101, uh, according to the, the logic underlying, uh, these texts. And it's that you have two ideas that are related, but different. One is the idea of purity versus impurity. And the, the second is holy versus the profane or just the normal right? The common. But the the main logical rule is that for something to become holy, it must first be clean. So you can, you can move from clean to become holy. Uh, what we're going to talk about is sort of the changes that are possible. Um, but it is impossible to move from being unclean to being holy. Uh, And actually the most dangerous chemical reaction that the system is concerned with is what would happen if you took something unclean, defiled, impure, again, not necessarily morally wrong, but for some reason considered uh, unclean, and that thing were to come into contact with something holy. So one we've touched on almost every episode is that example of Moses having to take off his dirty shoes when he's about to step onto a holy mountain. The concern, the, you basically have these four categories and they almost, they have two extremes. So one extreme is impure and you know, if you're impure, you're defiled, you're, you're definitely also not holy, right? This is the logic. You can't be those. That's the only combination that's not possible. Right. Uh, so impure is one end of the spectrum and holy is the other end of the spectrum. Uh, and to be holy, you would also have to be clean. And the way this is expressed spatially, remember, God is is the most holy substance. Right. And God is in the center of the tabernacle behind multiple barriers and confined there and at the other extreme the furthest away from god's holiness is the edges of the camp and then outside of israel's campsite right and so what happens if you become defiled is you actually have to go leave the camp you have to get further away and do what though? Like what that does that act make you clean again? Or you have to do other stuff, right? No, totally. So you just have to get away in order to to then safely at a distance do whatever it's going to take to become clean again. And then you can get close. So one is a, a sort of prevention move of <laughs> you're about to make this thing blow, get back, mm-hmm. right? 
And so that's this casting somebody out, getting them away. Um, and then the second is, and, and this is important, why, why blood? Why killing animals? Why burning things on altars? Why spreading liquids like oil and and blood and combinations of blood and water and herbs? Why using yes. these things? <laughs> this is always my question. Why blood? You know, like why do we have? Why is why is that so important? Why couldn't it have been like ketchup or you know a, 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 to in their day whatever? condiment they wanted to use but you know what i'm saying like why is that to be blood well before we get into why blood and not something else um just a question of why any substances right and that's and the reason is these categories of, of purity and holiness cleanness and holiness so the the whole point is that god remember this is the idea of the cosmic camp out god is going to come really close to you so what do you need to do? You need to construct a system where with precision and great care. And the point of this system is going to be creating a whole bunch of barriers between God and people, right? So the whole logic of creating a tabernacle, again, we talked about this, there's the ark and there's a, a covering over the ark that, that shadows the ark so no one can see it. Then incense is burned in front of the ark so no one can even see the thing on top of the ark. And then there's a, a curtain or the, the veil covering that entire room so no one accidentally looks into it or accidentally goes into it. Then there's a whole other corridor with curtains that are essentially walls, and then an, an altar in the doorway, which is an, another obstruction space. The, the logic is like you need to build a space with multiple barriers because when I come close, we're going to have to take extra care that too much contact doesn't happen or the wrong kind of contact doesn't happen. So first you have this whole construction of barriers, and then like the one I pointed out where the Levites – who are considered to be more holy are, are to camp in another circle around that tent where they themselves are like a human layer of insulation, right? So that's one piece of logic. So you have to build this structure, which is going to account for this danger. But then what, of course, do we read when we open the book of Leviticus? Here are a bunch of offerings you are going to make, and here's precisely how to make each one. Well, you know, what are the offerings? They're animals for the most part, and then you can use grains and oil and a few other things that are taken to a place, specific places at specific times, and killed and cooked and, and carefully separated, different parts. And then famously, the blood from the animal is sprinkled on different things, right? Yeah. So wh why? <laughs> like why is that why is that there, right? Why are they doing that? Why does God give them directions for how to do it? And I obviously that's a huge question. It's a question that millions of people have asked and tried to answer, right? Um but I think when we when we're really careful and this is where uh I think sort of the, the dominoes start to fall when we're really careful and we start to look at the, the underlying logic, some of the assumptions behind the text, things that aren't stated explicitly. Sometimes it actually is stated explicitly. The entire underlying principle of sacrifice in general is to do with this two-tiered concept, this chemistry rules of chemistry underlying this thing about how to be pure rather than impure and how to be holy rather than common because th those are the things you have to be to be close to God. In other words, the entire point of the project is for God to be close, physically close to people, Israel, right? And therefore... 
the entire point of the structure of the tabernacle and the things that happen there are to allow people to come close. And when we talked about the the reason coming close is dangerous or a concern or it doesn't happen, the reason there is a separation between man and, and God is not because God wanted that. It's because there are just physical, chemical facts about the world, according to these texts and these authors, that mandate <laughs> that that isn't a simple thing, right? And so big picture, the entire Levitical system, the tabernacles, the priests, the sacrifices, the blood, the substances, the whole thing as a coherent system is accomplishing allowing people to come close at a chemical level. Okay, this seems to logically be leading to, you said closeness, so Jesus, right? Like God with us, Emmanuel, we've mentioned that in the last few episodes. I'm dying to get there. But a question that I guess I've always had, and I didn't think of it until you started talking about this, but why not just do the Jesus thing like 1,000, 2,000 years before? Why go to all the trouble to set up this whole system when you could have just done the Jesus thing and it would have taken care of all this and you wouldn't have had to do this system? Or is that still thinking in the old way of of interpretation? I think that question is both a question that so many Christians have asked, and it's it's a fair question to ask, and I think that question has been problematic over time. Right as we've we've talked about, when we don't understand the system, we we look for an answer to that question, and so many times the answer to that question has been at least insulting and degrading to Judaism. Uh, at worst, it's been actually scapegoating, violent uh, toward Judaism. So, what I think is is one of the major wins and values to this whole set of conversations and where this is going to take us is being able to to get to the healthiest and most helpful answer to that question that I've ever been able to to come up with um, in terms of how to think about that quandary, right? If you're, if you're going to take all this as literal, <laughs> you know, the whole, well, why this whole system for, you know, a thousand years before Jesus and, uh, and that whole timing issue, <laughs> I think we'll actually sort of, once we get there and we cover a little more ground, um, be able to say some things that we simply haven't been able to say apart from this reading of, of atonement and the Levitical system. You know, even just as I asked that question, I, I think it did come from like an old perspective, an old interpretation where like, I'm going kind of the problem solving mindset, right? Well, like if we just needed to be forgiven of our sins, like why not just do that early on, you know? Why don't just do the Jesus thing a couple thousand years earlier and save all this trouble? But I think that's missing. I I see where that's disrespectful to um, even just, I remember what Rabbi Danya was saying a few episodes back about the just repentance and what that process looks like. And we skip all this stuff and we actually don't become better people we don't go through these processes. And I don't know if this is what you know what you were talking about when you said the best answer um, that we're going to get to eventually. But that's just what it kind of stirred up in me is like maybe there's some things we need to like go through to actually become these type of people. And maybe we just we skip all that stuff and go right to this like I had my sins forgiven and that's the Jesus thing. Um, yeah, I could see this being really cool. Yeah, so the the little tidbit I'll say now, and then this will need a lot of clarification. What the New Testament writers are going to to universally in different ways ag- agree on and put forth uh, unequivocally is that this system was a good thing a- accomplishing something good. That this system was a grace the tabernacle, God's presence amongst them, the cosmic camp out itself, these rules and how they applied to the system. These were divine gifts. These were mercies. These were a grace. And the main reason I'm saying is that is true because this was always God trying to be close with people, right? (laughs) This wasn't God trying to keep people away. And then later on after Jesus, God wants to come close. No, this was God's project. 
to be with humanity, reconciled with humanity again. This was a good thing. What the, what the New Testament writers say beyond that is why I say there is an intrinsic arrogance to Christianity that I think we need to be responsible for. And it is the claim that what this system was doing, Jesus did better. Okay? Right. That is intrinsically arrogant. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's bad to necessarily believe that. It it obviously is a bold, loud, you know, uh, claim in conversation as a part of Judaism, right? So, again, this is like, uh, to use uh, Jacob Neusner, who's a scholar, Christianity is a subspecies of the species of Judaism, right? This is a... This is happening within <laughs> Judaism, within a world where this system was a good thing. And and the main claim is that whatever this thing was doing, that's what Jesus was doing. And that's why atonement language gets used to speak of Jesus, even though, for instance, none of us have ever had Jesus's blood on us, right? None of us have ever performed a ritual offering or sacrifice. The idea is that whatever was happening at the tabernacle for Israel, something like that happened with Jesus. Now, where this whole series is is headed is that what that is meant for most of us, Protestants at least, is loaded into the word atonement. So I'm actually going to try not to use that English word because it's, and we're just going to actually use the Hebrew word, uh, kaper, when we talk about this, because even just hearing atonement, I think it makes 90% of us think wrath, appeasement forgiveness. Like you just can't even hear the word. You can't break away from it. Right. But the fact is that definition is entirely disputed and that definition doesn't fit nine out of 10 times that the word is used in the the Torah itself. Um, And so where we're going is that my claim, again, Jacob Milgram is sort of in modern scholarship, uh, was a Hebrew Bible scholar, worked at UC Berkeley, published the beginning of his work on Leviticus in the 70s, and essentially proved that what atonement means primarily is decontamination. And that what the entire Levitical system is doing, what those animals are for, what killing the animals is for, what the blood is for, what the tabernacle itself is for, is to make things clean that were not clean before. It is not to gain forgiveness, right? It is not atonement as in appeasement. And for the last several decades, uh, other scholars have, have sort of been in a critique and a firm relationship with Jacob Milgram, but what has happened over those decades is that the idea that atonement and blood was somehow cleansing or making clean or making holy and not about guilt forgiveness is just absolutely settled in biblical scholarship. <laughs> That's just settled. That's why I said that like we frame this as the, the idea that this is like some sort of cosmic, you know, physical, chemical decontamination rather than a wrath appeasement. That's not even, I know if you go to church on Sunday, that's a strange idea. In terms of actual biblical scholars, that's just like a, a, a done deal. So we're wow. going to get into like why the actual blood, you know, get into some of Milgram's argument, why, why we see all that. For here, what we're going to say is that this is the big picture piece. All of the pieces of this system, the existence of priests, the priests, what they wear, when they go into things, why offerings are being made in the first place, and then how the blood is being used in those offerings and the role of oil and these all these other things and all of the rules, the laws, the instructions. The whole point is to enact closeness via first moving whatever is unclean to being clean and then secondly, moving whatever is clean from being clean and common to being clean and holy. And the, the more holy something is, the closer it can get to God. So the, the ultimate success of this system is to make things 
clean and then holy and then so holy that they can be in the same space as God. That's the goal. And what we'll see is that is exactly what the New Testament writers think Jesus did, not just for a few people, but for the entire world, universally. Uh, So let's cover some ground on separation, mixture, chemicals, substances, and then we'll jump forward uh, and sort of see where the New Testament goes. Okay, so by the end of this series, we'll have beat this dead horse. Two binaries, pure versus impure, holy versus common, okay? And therefore, three combinations of those two are possible. One combination is just a physical impossibility. What that means, though, is that there are also four kinds of changes that can happen. So I actually mentioned them. But So one is you can go from being unclean to being clean, which is called purification or cleansing or decontamination or purgation. And what we'll see is the rules for the system provide a number of different means for making things and people which have become defiled clean again. And that the things primarily which cause uh, defilement in the first place are very normal, everyday things have nothing to do with wrongdoing. For instance, having a baby, giving birth, or bleeding, or coming in contact with a dead body. For instance, like when your family members die and you would like to treat them decently by at least burying them, right? That process of burial will make whoever was involved in contact with the corpse defiled, unclean. Are there any things that happen naturally to a man, things that make you unclean? Or is it only things that happen naturally to a woman that makes you unclean? No, it's it, obviously coming in contact with a, with a dead body, but you, you sort of choose that. I'm saying there's, there's things that you just listed there that women don't choose that make them unclean. And I'm saying, I'm just curious in a patriarchal society, were there things that made a man unclean that they had no say or control over? Yeah. Uh, good question. Yes. I think a longer conversation for another day, looking at the ways that the Levitical legal system, as we see it in the texts, uh, not as it developed throughout uh, later Judaism, but in these texts, uh, in my view, you can see signs of patriarchy. For instance, all these texts are are addressed simply to men. Uh, It's just assumed that whoever's reading these are, are men. You see signs of patriarchy. But at the same time, there is absolutely zero uh, sexism or ethnocentrism baked into the the legal system itself. Uh, So specifically, uh, women and foreigners are allowed to participate in the system, and, and this is stated explicitly multiple times, just as anybody else, right? So there's no... Uh, other than being priests, the priesthood was only for men. And again, I'm fully willing to call that type one patriarchy. <laughs> uh, but what's also interesting is there were there were steps taken to be explicit that nobody, even a, a foreigner who's living uh, with Israel in the camp, who wasn't a, a part of Israel, that no one was to be excluded from their uh, their right to come close to God by coming toward the tabernacle, okay? And so uh, in terms of uncleanness, some people, scholars have argued, basically a woman who is menstruating or a woman who, who gives birth to a child is unclean, and then you have prescriptions of how long they're unclean for and what they have to do to become clean again. Um, a, a man becomes unclean the way this is translated, this is another conversation for another day, as a nocturnal emission. Uh, Okay. (laughs) In other words, most translators are interpreting this phrase as what, in my modern vernacular, I don't know what else to call it, other than a wet dream, uh, 
Why that would have made the list of things to talk about uh, becoming defiling is a fascinating question, if and if that is a proper translation. Right. But something that happens to a man that they don't have control over in their body, similar to menstruation, uh, is also deemed unclean for a man. So some people have looked at, well, the, like, the time of defilement lasts longer for a woman than the time of defilement for a man. So maybe that's another sign of patriarchal uh, gender bias. Um, others have pushed back on that. But basically, defilement can happen to anybody at any time, okay? So in terms of purity and impurity, those are the two movements. You can be clean and become defiled by something happening to your body or if, you know, if a, if a woman is menstruating and has therefore become unclean, according to the system, and then you touch that woman or touch the blood, you become unclean by contact, okay? So uncleanness or defilement spreads. It is contagious. And what has to happen, therefore, is prevention. That is, if you have just become unclean, do not touch other people. <laughs> Get out of your tent. Get out of the camp. Don't touch anybody until you can become clean, okay? And then prescriptions, careful precautions are taken to, to go through ritual acts of cleansing to make those people clean again, which usually involve water. Later on, we're going to talk about baptism as a form of cleansing, sometimes blood, but basically a cleansing action happens. The person or the object can become clean again and then can be in contact with people. So you have defilement and then cleansing, right? They sort of, those are the two directions in terms of cleanness. And then the, the other two movements are to do with holiness. And you can take a common thing and make it holy. And that is the word that we have typically translated into our English Christianese as either consecrate or sanctify. Anytime you see sanctify or sanctification in the New Testament, it is not primarily a word denoting moral progress, becoming a better person. Hmm. It is a word denoting the move from something that is common in the world to something that is holy and therefore can be close to God. Again, what we'll look at later, one of the, the terms used in the Old Testament of those who are close to God is the holy ones. And it's very telling, we'll see later on, that in the New Testament, that is the primary term, not Christian, not disciple, but holy one is the primary term used to denote those that are in Christ, this new church branch of Judaism. Right. Yeah. They are the ones who have been made holy and can be close to God. So you have consecration or sanctification, same word, just same meaning, just two different uh, English versions of the word. Uh, and But he, <laughs> this can happen in a number of ways. So the priests, for instance, become holy. We talked about this last time. By first taking a bath, getting clean, and then putting on holy clothes. The clothes literally or a set of symbolic uh, garments, and one of them is a piece that goes on the head, engraved on it, is holy to Yahweh. If it wasn't clear enough that the point of the outfit is to make the priest holy, it has a sign on it saying the point of this outfit is to make me holy. So one of the primary ways to make someone holy was to add something to them as a form of a kind of insulating layer and a topical addition that would allow for greater contact. So the first one is clothes, but the second one, the entire uh, motif of anointing with oil, where you take some oil, put it on someone's head and anoint them, the anointed one, the Mashiach, that is entirely a priestly term. Uh, it's, a, it's a priestly motif before it's a royal king motif uh, in the Hebrew Bible because it is what 
Aaron and his sons, his crew, before they go into the tabernacle, they have to put oil on themselves and that consecrates them. That makes them holy. It's a, oil is a substance. Get into the details of the substances later that, that has the power. And actually there's a whole recipe given for how to make a holy oil. And it's, you take olive oil and you mix some herbs in it and a careful, uh, ingredient list and a careful, uh, set of directions for the exact recipe. And if you get that recipe right, according to the text, it has the power to make things holy. Whatever it touches, it will make holy. So there's actually a prohibition saying no one else can use this recipe. It's only to be used for the priests. So as weird as it sounds, I think this, this is where I really started to see and really truly believe that one of the underlying principles here, it's not necessarily that there's anything magical about oil, olive oil, uh, or about this outfit that the high priest is going to wear, or about the water that they use to cleanse themselves before they put the outfit on. These are means of accomplishing the two major goals. Cleaning, and it's pretty easy for us to see water and bathing as a cleaning act, right? <laughs> like, so, so taking a bath or doing like laundering uh, clothes that have become defiled via a mold or some touching something else, they just need to be laundered, right? That's easy for us to get because we actually still... My kid did just poop in the bathtub though and there is the idea of getting dirtier when you take a bath too, um, especially for my four-year-old that had to swim out of the, the poop region. So you know, it's kind of a 50-50, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Generally, you get cleaner when you take a bath. Generally. Yeah. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Uh, so the, the other one that I think has been harder to see, uh, and even a lot of scholars that I, uh, have learned a ton from, I think they've missed a couple things here is, is that the primary way that holiness is accomplished is by adding layers of insulation to create further barriers of contact between God and the person. Um, and blood will, will come to be the insulating substance par excellence, which is why animals are sacrificed, okay? <laughs> and they're, they're eaten. They're used for food, right? We'll, we'll get into this. We can't forget, though, that the offerings were, they were essentially barbecues. The priests were, were butchers and cooks who were also using parts of the animals in entirely ritualistic ways, but they were, this was also a part, a part of eating and food. Okay. Um, but the point of the blood was in line with, you know, building a tabernacle with several barriers, right? Yep. Several walls, curtains. It was another way, blood, oil, a mixture of the two special clothes. Those things, uh, add further layers prohibiting contact. Okay. Uh, but he, so here, so you can be clean and become defiled, defilement. You can be defiled and be cleansed so that you're clean again. And if you're clean, you can be consecrated by a, a number of different ways to become holy. But here's the one that I have seen few scholars point out and I think is incredibly important and, and will show us some things, is there's a lot of concern for the fact that once something is holy, it's actually two things. 
Holiness is highly contagious and highly dangerous, but also holiness can be lost. So if we're going to say, to, to call becoming holy consecration, let's just use the word profanization to make something profane again. Oh yeah, because that's, yeah, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> A nice, simple word to remember it by. Yeah. It's the opposite of holy is a really hard thing to define, to actually pit a word for, right? Common, I think, is a good word, but it it's missing some of the, the elements here. It's missing some of the underlying chemical assumptions, <laughs> the the ideas of, of what is uh, true of substances in the world. So there are two things. One and this is just a key to the, the entire point of the system, is that you can change or an object can change, right? Once something is defiled, it can be made clean. So, so the system is built to do that. That's what the priest's job is, is to, to operate and enact that change. If that change were impossible, you wouldn't need any sacrifices, okay? So the whole underlying mechanism of the symptom of the system is to enact the positive changes, to move people and things from unclean to clean and then from common to holy. But the second underlying principle of the system, this is where we'll go back to our nuclear reactor metaphor, is there is great risk intrinsic at every step of the way. And the main threat, I actually think our our modern usage of the, the term viral and when things go viral and spread rapidly, right? It's almost like a medical term applied to social media ideas or, you know, tweets or whatever. Um, but it's this, this idea of virality, how fast something can spread. And one of the main parts of the priest, remember I mentioned this when we started, you have multiple verses which specify that the main task of the priest is to separate the unclean from the clean and dis- help the people distinguish between the holy and the common. Right. They were the, what do we call them? The holy bouncers? Right. And so they have to do security to keep unclean and holy from coming into contact because that's the Alka-Seltzer in the soda bottle eruption. Things will go boom. Right. But they also, this is a very important part of their secondary task, is once something has become defiled, that thing can spread rapidly throughout the entire nation to the point where no one would be able to be clean, and therefore no one would be able to be holy, and therefore no one could be close to God. So, so much of the procedures laid out in Leviticus and then the texts around Leviticus, are about how to prevent and then control the viral spread of defilement. It's like when you set up all the dominoes and they you accidentally bump one over and you have to like reach your hand out and like choose a spot to kind of like stuff your hand in to try to stop it from going any farther. Yeah, and I, and I actually think this is the logic of why you see God saying such threatening things to people who don't follow these rules, right? <clears throat> we talked about in some of the introductory episodes that it's these threatening language. It's it's this threatening language where God is saying, if you don't follow these rules, I'm going to punish you. That makes us think that, that an angry God and that go- angry God's punishment is the thing we're supposed to be afraid of, right? That is what it means to, f- to fear the Lord, Instead of the primary idea being coming too close with God as a dangerous act in and of itself, but it's the good project that we all want to participate in, and one of the main threats to that entire project that could not only ruin the project but kill everybody in the process is if defilement spreads rapidly throughout this whole camp. Right. So this entire theme even though a lot of us have missed it for a long time, is developed early, which is about cleaning and, and decontaminating the camp, which actually 
becomes an entire motif that rolls forward throughout the Hebrew Bible and into the New Testament in the person of Paul, that what it meant to be zealous, to have zeal for Yahweh, was to do whatever the heck it takes to keep the camp clean. So you actually have a story, which is one of the first, and then this story gets snowballed forward, of a guy named Phineas who sees an Israelite man essentially defiling the camp by having sex with a foreign woman, an unclean woman. And Phineas proves his zeal by spearing both of them through in front of the tabernacle, executes them. And this act of zeal, this violent murder in our common uh, minds, is celebrated by God within the text as Phineas doing whatever the heck it takes to protect this whole system. You get several other characters throughout the Hebrew Bible who do this. When Paul explains that the reason he was killing Christians before he had his road to Damascus moment was that he was fully zealous for for Yahweh. What he's saying is, I was doing Phineas zealousness. I was doing what I was interpreting the Levitical system to require of me, which is to protect the cleanness of the nation, the community, the land, at whatever cost possible, even at whatever moral cost possible, like murdering somebody. And Paul saw the Christians as defilement to the camp, so Paul was going to do whatever it it took. So one interesting piece we're going to get to is is why Paul changes his mind on what cleanness and uncleanness means uh, and and what zeal actually means, right? Um so big picture, the ideas going on here about, uh, essentially it's quarantine. Mm. <laughs> it is it is containing defilement so that it doesn't spread, preventing it from happening in the first place. And then if it does happen and you contain it, then you have the means to treat it. You can cleanse the defilement. You can make the unclean thing become clean but you sure as heck better not let it go viral. So that threat of viral contamination, I think is the number one assumed threat underlying all these texts that if we don't have that in our head, we're just not, we're not gonna be able to make sense of stuff. We're not gonna be able to make sense of why it matters so much to God that they follow the rules. We're not gonna be able to make sense of why it's a good thing that Phineas, according to the text, not according to our modern ethics, that Phineas would go kill a couple people, right? That doesn't make any sense. Unless we understand this whole idea of, of containment of a viral contagion, i.e. defilement. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah, it's making sense. I guess I still am just left with this feeling of something's wrong with us we need to be made different in order to be with the god who made us yeah that i think that has led me and i think a lot of people um who coming from the church into bad into bad postures towards god into feeling inadequate feeling like we're not worth anything feeling like you know just guilt and shame um and I see how I see how people get there from even this better understanding, maybe a better reading of what is taking place in the Old Testament and the sacrificial system and the the insulation that you're bringing up, all this. But it still is coming from this place of something is wrong with us. Even if you say like something needs to change, even if it's not like bad or wrong, but it needs to be different in order for us to be with God. It's still coming from if we look, if we zoom out, it's still coming from this perspective of we're not okay the way we are. And I think that, you know, psychologically that's, 
pretty damaging. Yeah, and I I just know. So I've been in this stuff long enough to be able to unlearn that lens and and put on a new one. But in conversations with you, Nate, and conversations with uh, some of our supporters who have been tracking with this series, this is just a long process of unlearning that thing. None of these texts are telling us that. <laughs> None of them, right? The, the story of Genesis 1 and 2 introducing this book is that humanity is good. God is quite happy with it. And then something happens that goes wrong. We have read into that story, therefore God's no longer happy with us, or therefore we are no longer good, okay? None of that is actually explicitly a part of the story. The, the story is a, a distance and a separation that, again, to use this language, are a, a matter of chemistry and physics. So we're actually... I know this is strange here. We're actually going to get into, uh, hopefully next conversation, like stoic science on chemical mixtures, which I know sounds very strange. But what we're going to see is that actually how some of the New Testament writers and early church fathers were making sense of Jesus was according to the, the chemistry science of their day. And I think what this just made me realize ultra clear besides some fascinating things we'll we'll learn about early Christology is that like we're always using un inevitably we always have our own modern science as a lens that we approach things and these writers had science right? Like people haven't, they didn't just start studying the world and making observations and guessing how things worked after the enlightenment, right? People have always been doing this. Uh, we've been getting better at it, right? Technology has helped us get better at it, but people have always tried to understand the relationship between material substances and movement and how wind works and what happens, for instance, if you mix two different kinds of liquids together. Like, People have always had science. And what we're going to see is that these ideas, the, the reason I use words like chemistry and physics, these ideas are about scientific beliefs about how the world is. Right. And have nothing to do with, with moral, emotional, or psychological statements about the goodness or value or whatever of, of human people. Now, parts of the biblical text get there and talk about morality. That's a big concern, right? But that isn't the point of this story. That's not the point of the Levitical system. That's not the point of atonement. I think then it's important for us and would be responsible for us in doing this show to frequently remind people that we don't think this is the way the world is. And it's not true in the sense of God can't be around us until we make changes to ourselves to be around God. Um, even if you take any right and wrong out of that, you take any good and bad or anything like that, just God can't be around us. I say it's important to take that away because that's a, that is hurting people. And like we've said on the show before, we want to look at how it trickles down, how the ideas trickle down the stream. And so I just think we need to be, we should be careful when we present these ideas to say, I see what you're saying. That's not what there's no, uh, so you were bad. And so you had to do these things in order to be with God in the biblical writers of the Old Testament and their understanding. But these ideas have been used, the ideas like this have been used to, I think, give people a pretty crummy picture of God and their relationship to God. We've talked about that, you know, the great chasm before and the, you know, needing to needing to get to this, yeah, divine being or something like that. But I just think that's important. I think that's important to say because I know a lot of people that listen to our show have um, lived for many years with, psychologically troubling pictures of God. Yeah, I hear you. The only thing I'd push back on is just say, you and I, at least, can be honest to say that we no longer believe this to be true. Some people still do, right? We don't know actually what it would happen if we woke up in a room with God, right? Like, who knows? But we do look at the world through a very different science, right? And, and 
we'll, we'll get here. Part of the reason why the Christian-influenced Western world no longer even has any familiarity with these ideas is because Christianity was seen to be the end of this concern. Jesus was the thing that made it so that people could be close to God. That was one of the primary essential pieces of what the gospel was. So fast forward 2,000 years, we've lost the sense of of how that was accomplished, right? And now we just accept the fact that, you know, these were never threats in the first place. But what we've done in the process is then made Jesus mean something that Jesus didn't mean, at least to the people who wrote the New Testament. So all of this complicated, yeah, we're going to try to be honest with our own sort of what we can believe, what we can't believe, you know. Okay, so you said earlier you're dying to see how this connects to Jesus in the New Testament. So let's finish this up with a with a flash at that. So, so far we've been saying that essentially one way of understanding this entire, what I'm going to call the Levitical system, because I think the tabernacle with the priests and the space and the layout in the campground, the project is to camp with God. This entire set of rules and instructions is a is a system, a coherent system for how to do that, okay? And one of the underlying principles behind everything is separation and and essentially a def- defensive separation out of concern for the viral contamination of of the negative thing of defilement. Okay. Would this be like when the people had leprosy and they had to like they removed themselves from the the group in order to not get other people sick? Exactly. And you see it actually. You ever wondered why there are rules saying you cannot mix? We'll get into this. The opposite of to separate is to mix. Why you cannot mix two kinds of cloth in one garment? Or why you cannot plant two kinds of seed in the same field? Or why you cannot mate two kinds of animals together? Why is, why is it? <laughs> These are rules getting at this underlying principle that we are all just supposed to be familiar with, which is that, that the primary act of the priest is to, to maintain the, the functionality and the health of the system via separation. And actually, Genesis 1 and 2 present God creating life, either the the world or in Genesis 2, just creating this little peaceful uh, oasis within the world via the act of separation. So what it says God does is to separate one thing from the other. He he creates borders, actually. Um, It's hinting at this theme that to to separate is the, the priestly theme, the priestly principle. Because to let things mix means to let them contaminate one another, right? When things touch, contamination spreads. So if you keep things separate, separate, nothing will spread, right? Just you sort of tracking this. This is the theme. Yeah. It is especially to separate the holy from the impure because those are two opposite ends of the spectrum and they're not to touch. But here's the thing I hadn't seen and it changes everything. It is that cross-contamination within Leviticus, if you read carefully, it happens in both directions. Meaning, the concern is not just that a a holy or clean thing becomes defiled or that a a defiled thing comes too close to, uh, to something holy. But there, there are concerns about holiness coming into contact with anything else. So for instance, when the priests put on those holy clothes and go into the tabernacle, they're explicitly instructed that they have to take off their clothes before they leave the tabernacle because otherwise they will bring something holy into contact with other people and objects which are not holy and something bad will happen. Right. Um, 
They cannot bring holy food, food that was used in the offering. They have to eat it inside the tabernacle, it says, or inside particular spots within the tabernacle, and not eat it in other places to avoid the spread of holiness. So I hadn't seen this before, but one role is it's not just to contain the spread of defilement, right? That part makes enough sense. It's like, you know, disease is bad, so don't let the disease spread. Right, but contain the holiness too. Exactly, because holiness would spread. And and actually where I sort of found this affirmed is you have, so you have the four categories, unclean, clean, unholy, holy. But then two of those categories have gradations that are sort of a technical term. So you can be, something can be uh, impure, unclean, or it can be, Utterly impure. That's what the word that you often see defined as abomination. So it's like really, really impure, right? That thing has to be even further away than other things. And holy is is a condition which can be, have various severities and something can be the most holy thing. So there's holy and then there's the most holy. And I think if, if you track the technical usage of these terms, those actually just denote the spreadability. So if something is holy, it's like shouldn't come into contact with impure stuff, but it isn't, that holiness isn't contagious. But if something is most holy, then anything it touches will become holy. And that seems like it's a good thing, right? Because the whole point is for Israel and the world to be able to be with God, which requires them being holy. But again, this is a world built on the assumption that impurity happens at things as as simple as getting a cut and bleeding, right? Or having to go poop. (laughs) Impurity is rampant, right? Just based on the, again, the, the physical chemical beliefs of life that have nothing to do with morals. So you could see why we're in a tension, we're in a bind, because the point is to be holy, right? It's a holy nation. There's a scene where, uh, in numbers where uh, what's been called Korah's rebellion, we're <laughs> talk about it later, but Korah comes up and he's like, why do we just have one high priest? All of the people are holy. That That's the point, right? But the reason there's this whole hierarchical priestly system is because of this tension of defilement and, and holiness. So again, this is, <laughs> this is all background. We're going to jump into Jesus real quick. The, the main precautions are based on the assumption that when you mix two things together, if you mix something that is clean and something that is unclean, what wins? Uncleanness. The, de- the defilement spreads, so separation is good. That is the underlying principle. So, to be really crystal clear here, I don't mean this as a critique in any way of Judaism or the Levitical system. Uh, we'll explain sort of more in detail how Jesus was was working through this in, as we see it in the New Testament. But the, the system by, by definition, by nature, inevitably was one of defensiveness, right? It's the language of it's, it's walls and barriers and veils and curtains, right? It's to keep things at a distance, to keep things separate for good reasons. Again, this was all to help Israel be close to God. But the main threat is becoming defiled. And so we got to keep separate, right? Keep separate from foreign nations, keep separate from other women, that sort of like all that thing. Keep separate from people who are sick, keep separate from the blind. And so one of the first things we are introduced to when we open up one of the Gospels, is a conundrum of a human being who repeatedly, scene after scene after scene, does the opposite of separating and breaks all of the normal defensive requirements of maintaining cleanness right. and makes contact with a whole litany of the kinds of people who are laid out in Leviticus and this whole system as being those that defile. And specifically, what we're 
sort of made to watch when we read the Gospels is, is what we should expect to happen really happening. If Jesus touches, for instance, a woman who is bleeding, right? In Mark 5, the, the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, this is a case study, a bleeding woman, a menstruant, as the scholars would would say it, is one of the cases in Leviticus, right, of, of a defiling situation. Well, then what do we know? A, a bleeding woman who is defiled comes up and what happens? Touches Jesus. What should we be expecting to hap- see happen when we read that story? What would any Jew who's familiar with Torah, familiar with the Levitical system, familiar with the additional oral Torah that had elaborated and expanded on the system, what would they have thought had just happened? So then Jesus would be unclean now. Correct. This is really fascinating because this is more than just, this changes the whole idea of like, Jesus was just like really, really nice. He was really nice going around to all these down and out people, which we might see some of that as well. But what you're bringing up is he's specifically showing, or the biblical writers are specifically showing him in situations where it's breaking this clean, unclean barrier. He's you're taking something clean and holy and touching something or being with someone that should make that clean and holy thing unclean. And it's not. Right. And and it's not just, okay, Jesus is willing to break the rules because he doesn't care about these rules. This is all legalism. No. And actually, Jesus will clarify multiple times. That's not the point. What's happening is the belief is that defilement would have won out. What we actually see, remember I just said that holiness is also contagious. And if something was really, really holy, it's really contagious. What we are seeing played out in the Gospels is an experiment told in story form. What happens if something really unclean, contagiously unclean, posing a a threat of viral contamination, comes into direct physical contact with something really, really holy? And the answer is holiness wins, not defilement, but holiness. So Jesus is touched. All of these stories are drawing our attention to there is a physical touch happening. The woman touches his clothes, or in one line says touches him, and not only is he not made unclean, but she is actually healed, okay? Then later in that chapter, a, a girl has died, therefore, is a corpse, and Jesus goes and touches a corpse, right at one of those moments where defilement is supposed to ruin the whole thing. And instead, what happens is holiness wins over the defilement. So the corpse, the dead person, the dead girl, is healed, brought back to life, and also cleansed and made holy. To make this even more clear, have you ever wondered why there are several stories, one with a blind person, actually two stories, one in John, one in Mark of a, of a blind man, and one of a, of a mute man, where Jesus actually uses spit and mixes it in with some dirt and then rubs the spit right. on the person? Have you ever wondered why in the world are we reading <laughs> those details? Yeah, it just seemed like the specific magical formula that he happened to use that time or something. The, the point is, this is a more extreme version of defilement interacting and mixing in with holiness because there was a list of bodily fluids that would defile a person or object or anything that it touched, and spit was one of those fluids. So this is like second phase exp- science experiment what if Jesus takes not even just a part of his body, but actually the most otherwise defiling part of his body and touches a defiled person with that thing? Then is defilement going to win out? And what the Gospels are trying to get us to see is no, actually holiness wins out. 
So what we're actually watching, I know this is strange and we're going to get into sort of the, the micro level details of it, is in Jesus's body, there is, there is a substance holy enough and powerful enough such that the defensiveness that the Levitical system called for in a good, helpful way, again, this isn't legalism, a defensiveness that was meant to bring about contact with God is no longer necessary and the thing that that system was trying to bring about, which was making someone clean so that then they could be made holy, Jesus is doing all of that at once just by making contact with people. Uh, okay. Yeah, I see it. So we'll get into, <laughs> we're going to see why eventually the role of blood and doing at scale what Jesus was doing with his body in real life and why the bread and wine symbolize Jesus's body and blood and how this bodily contact gets rolled forward. It's fascinating. There's all this stuff. Essentially, to, to just summarize, we're supposed to keep separate uh, because in most situations, uncleanness will spread. And Jesus represents a new situation, not a critique on the Levitical system, but a new situation, which according to the same rules of the Levitical system, actually creates a solution in, in a beautiful way that also helps bring all of those marginal outcasts, suffering, hurting, lonely, and even dead people back into the very heart of the fold uh, and therefore making all of those people, all kinds of people, able to have an even more direct contact with God than than before. So it, again, Jesus is doing what the Levitical system was also doing. The gospel writers are just making the claim that Jesus is doing it more effectively, uh, critiquing it. He's not hostile with it. He's accomplishing the same exact thing the Levitical system had been built to accomplish. Interesting. Okay. I'm excited to get into that a bit more and so glad that you are on this journey with us. We'd love to hear from you. If you ever have anything you want to share, we read every single email we get at contact at almostheretical.com. And again, the second podcast called Utterly Heretical, where we dive in deeper into how we actually feel about a lot of this stuff and how it uh, impacts our practices and what we actually do uh, spiritually and religiously. Um, that's a whole second show for supporters of this podcast, and it's called Utterly Heretical. You can get that at patreon.com slash almost heretical. All right, friends, we will catch you next time. Peace.